I know that uh, this is a special time of year for many, and it's also a hard time of year uh, for some. And we gather tonight like we do every Sunday morning in need of what only Jesus can do for us, uh, even as was prayed and we've sung and read already that this season of the year, just like every season, is about Christ and what he has accomplished in the place of his people. Tonight is not really a typical sermon. It's more of a Christmas Eve meditation. But even with that, let's go to the Lord and pray and ask for his help as we will consider what his son has done for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you quite simply now and ask, as we do all the time, that you would help us as we consider the truth of your word. We pray that you would show us Christ, quite simply, that we would behold him, and that in beholding our Savior, that we would be strengthened, that we would be confirmed even in our faith, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. We pray that we would know comfort deep in our souls tonight as we consider Christ, and we pray that we would know peace the peace that is ours between us and you because of what Christ has done. Through him, we have every spiritual blessing and we're grateful. We pray all of these things and ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, the celebration of Christmas, even in the church, for Christians can be its own kind of standalone thing. I don't know if you've observed this, I have. Sometimes Christmas and all of the festivities that come with it, even for Christians, is somewhat disconnected from the rest of the year. It's somewhat even disconnected, perhaps, the Christmas story is from the rest of the Bible. It's this almost like Christian version of Twas the Night Before Christmas. You know, we gather around the fireplace or whatever your thing is around the tree or whatever, you light candles or you get certain kinds of food or whatever it may be, and you get the family around and you read one of the birth narratives from Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, or maybe you're really robust at your house and you read both of them. I don't know. But it still becomes this kind of unique thing that we do in this special time of year. Not that that's wrong, but for many people, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus being born a baby, can be very disconnected from the rest of Scripture and the rest of their Christian life. It's this thing that's kind of dropped down and parachutes in, sort of in the middle of everything else. We know the story, baby Jesus in the manger. We know about the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. We know about the nativity scene. Maybe many of us have one of those on our mantles or on a table at the house. There are theological reasons why the birth narrative and the story of Christmas becomes kind of disconnected, but that's not the focus of our time together tonight. Christmas, just like everything else in the Bible, and ultimately everything else in this world that God has made, is about redemption. So if you're going to ask the question, what is Christmas ultimately about? Yes, it's about God becoming man. That's true. We could say any number of things. It's about peace. It's about goodwill toward men. It's about you fill in the blank. But ultimately, Christmas is about redemption, as is the rest of everything in God's world. Christmas, like the entirety of Scripture, is about God and about his plan to redeem his people a plan that existed before time began that would be accomplished in time and space by God the Son who took on flesh. That's what Christmas is about. Matthew chapter 1. We've already read some of this tonight. I'm going to read these verses for us again. They're familiar to us. Let them just kind of sit in your mind. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then these words, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, right? for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those two phrases in those last couple of verses are of massive importance. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. He will save his people, we'll call him Jesus for that reason, and he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now to make much sense, to make up or down or heads or tails of that, we should go back to the beginning of the story, the beginning of history. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we're told about the beginning of the world as we know it. We're told that God created everything, created it good. The crown of his creation was to create human beings in his image. So he made a man named Adam, and from Adam made a woman named Eve. And everything God said was very good. And God made a covenant with Adam and Eve that they were to keep. They were to obey what he had said. He told them that they were to reign over the creation in his stead, that they would fill the earth and subdue it, that they could eat of anything that he had given them, but they were not to eat of one particular tree. There was a prohibition as a part of this covenant that God had made. Well, we know that Adam and Eve transgressed God's covenant. They broke it. And because of that violation of God's covenant, God in his justice banished them from his presence. One of those horrible scenes in all of the Bible is at the end of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden. They're driven away from their creator. They're driven away from their benevolent, good, and loving God. And we're told that God put a cherubim and flaming swords and all these kinds of things at the edge of the garden to guard it so that man could not come back in. Because of our sin, we could no longer dwell with God. It's tragic. It's devastating. We know from God's word as well that all of Adam and Eve's children, that's all of us, all of the human beings who have ever lived or ever will live, inherited their corruption. And so we inherit their guilt as well, meaning that we, just like Adam and Eve, are unfit to be with God. So all of this business about Jesus coming to save people from their sins is a massive deal. And this business of him being called Emmanuel, God with us, is a massive deal. How can God dwell with sinners? It's a massive, important question that permeates the whole of Scripture. We know that in the midst of the heartbreak and ruin of the fall of man, recorded in Genesis chapter 3, that God made a promise of a Redeemer who would come. Now fast forward several thousand years. Several thousand years of the history unfold, and we arrive upon a scene of a baby in a manger. It's outside of Bethlehem, the city of David, most likely in a cave of sorts. What's going on with that baby in that manger? Seems rather obscure, doesn't it? Some small town nobody really cares about, 
a baby that nobody really cares about, at least in terms of earthly fanfare, is born. And it changed the course of human history. But how? God the Son, we know, had taken on human flesh and had become a man at that point in time and space. No wonder the angels were singing. The eternal covenant that God had made was now being fulfilled in time and space by God the Son who became a man as it was always planned that he would. So for the rest of our time together, I just want to consider six reasons that Jesus came. Six reasons that God the Son became man. There are way more reasons than six, but we'll consider six of them tonight in this brief time together. Reason number one, why did God the Son become a man? Number one, to fulfill the covenant that Adam broke. Number one, to fulfill the covenant that Adam broke. So everything that we lost in Adam, we now have in Christ Jesus by faith. You want a simple biblical definition of the work of Christ. Everything we lost in Adam, we now have in Jesus. He is the new and better Adam. He is the second Adam, as we even read about in Romans chapter 5 tonight. The witness of Scripture is quite clear. That God, the covenant that he had made with Adam, that covenant according to works that had been broken, needed to be fulfilled in order for man to spend the rest of their lives forever with God in a peaceful existence. So Jesus would come and do it. He would fulfill everything that was required of us. We could illustrate this a number of ways, but perhaps one of the most pointed illustrations in all of Scripture as to Jesus' work as the new and better second Adam takes place in his temptation, the start of his earthly ministry. Many will know the story where he goes out into the wilderness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he is tempted by the evil one. Now, remember how the fall of man happened originally. Adam had everything going for him. Adam was in a paradise. It was perfect. And yet, when Adam faced the temptation of Satan, he fell. Jesus, hungry, in a wasteland, in a wilderness, having everything stacked against him, faced the temptation of Satan and succeeded. He is the new and better Adam. He is the new and better Israel. So whenever you read your Bible and you think of the ways that Adam failed or Israel failed over and over and over again, let that drive you to praise and thanksgiving that one would come who would fulfill all of God's righteous requirements in the place of his people so that by faith we might have his righteousness. Second reason that God the Son became man is to make atonement and propitiation for our sin. So those two words are important. Atonement means to pay the price that is owed, to satisfy justice. Propitiation is to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. It's a satisfying sacrifice in the place of God's people. So today is Tuesday. Think of what has happened in your life, for those of you who were here on Sunday morning. Think of what has happened in your life since then. It's like 48 hours in change, right? Since we were last together. Think of how many times you've desired or thought or said or done something that's wrong. It's a number of times for many of us, if we really are honest and reflect well. Well, if that's true of the last 48 plus hours, think of your entire life, the sins that you have committed, the sins that you will commit before you die. And we're told in God's word that 
Jesus, the God-man, truly God, truly man, took our sins in his own body to the tree and died in the stead of wretched sinners like us. He took on flesh to die for men. He assumed an entire human nature so that he could redeem us entirely. We're told that he once and for all time made a single sufficient sacrifice for sins, all of them. That's a mind blow. To think that on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, one single solitary sacrifice was made that atoned for all of the sins of God's people from all time. Holy smokes. It speaks to how incredible Christ is and to the sufficiency of his work. He came to atone for our sin and to satisfy God's wrath in the place of God's people. Third reason that God became man was to guarantee our sanctification. Is to guarantee our sanctification, our transformation, our growth in holiness. Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which means all of them. To be blessed with every blessing means just that, that Christ has secured every blessing for his people. Paul tells the Romans that we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. We will be like him. We're told that and promised that in Scripture. Paul writes to the Corinthians that Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all, including our sanctification. Praise be to his name. If you know the reality of struggling under the weight of your own corruption, how much comfort can that give you tonight? That as I struggle and as I wrestle and as I fall, I know that I am safe and secure in Christ. I will be transformed and conformed to his image. And I know that my sanctification is certain because of Jesus. Fourth reason that God became man was to be our resurrection. To be our resurrection. So every person in this room is perishing. It matters not how young or how old. Not to be morbid on a Christmas Eve, but death is a reality. It's been a reality in the family of one of the families here at CBC today. Death is horrible. It's terrifying. It's the last and final enemy. And Jesus, in taking on our humanity, conquered death in the place of all of us, his people. Through our union with Jesus by faith, we're told that he, we, excuse me, will be resurrected like he was. Just like Jesus canceled sin on a cross 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, he also crushed death forever. He crushed it forever in the place of all of his people who look to him and trust in him for their salvation. And we will be raised imperishable, immortal, to live with God forever. There's a reason why all of those happily ever after stories, movies and the like that we see or that we read, they tug at our hearts because we long for it. We long for that reality. Peace is everywhere. There's no more danger. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. Nothing's in jeopardy anymore. It's all good. And it will be happily ever after. There's a reason you long for it. It's because eternity's been written into your heart. And Jesus accomplished that and secured it for you. Where is your victory, O grave? It's gone because of Christ. Number five. 
God became man to bring us back to God. God became man to bring us back to God. We were driven away as we considered in the most horrible chapter in all of the Bible, driven out of the presence of God, driven away from his loving and kind countenance. Because of our corruption and our sin, we are no longer fit to live with him. There's a children's book that we read regularly at our house. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. I would highly commend it to you. It tells this story of how Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and how God put a big keep out sign at the edge of the garden and said, because of your sin, you can't come in. And then as history unfolded, God dealt with his people and they would build a temple where his presence would dwell. He had a house on earth, but there was this great curtain. And what was on the curtain? Angels, cherubim, flaming swords. What was that about? God was telling his people, it's good to dwell with me, but because of your sin, you can't. You can't be here. Well, what happened when Jesus died on a cross on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago? That same curtain ripped in two from the top to the bottom. What's that about? It's because the way has been made back to God. Because of our sin, we can't come in. We can't dwell with God. But in Christ, our sin has been dealt with. So we are welcome now to live with God forever in peace and harmony and joy forever. Thanks be to God for Jesus and what he has accomplished in our place. We are now not only reconciled to God, we are called co-heirs with Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are called his sons and his daughters, and we now call him father. We no longer call him judge. In Christ, we are accepted, we are loved, and we are known by God. Number six, God became man in order to give us peace. God became man in order to give us peace. The words of Isaiah for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Familiar words, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that peace is not primarily of a horizontal variety between men, though it is that. That peace that this particular child would bring is primarily of a vertical reality between us and God of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Again, he's bringing peace as he comes. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. Peace forever. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Listen to these words again. What did Jesus come to give you? Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a refrigerator-worthy verse. We've been reading some really heavy verses lately on Sundays that have not been really refrigerator-type verses. That is one of them. It's an incredible thought. Therefore, since we have been justified, something that has happened, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that peace temporary or forever? It's the latter. Keep reading. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that about? That's about resurrection, man. It's just what he's going to talk about in Romans chapter 8, that there's a groaning 
The whole creation, we along with it, are groaning for what? The revealing of the sons of God. All right, so through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, life's going to be hard right now. But more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is secure. This is peace with God now. And having been justified and reconciled to God and being at peace with him now, we are promised that we will be at peace with God forever. Our current justification and peace with God secures our final glorification and peace with God. That is the biblical testimony. All accomplished by Christ for you and me. So all of this, friends, and much more is what Christmas is about. As we look to the manger, we should see the cross as well. As we consider Christ's birth, let's remember how he took on our sin and our death and our rebellion and has given us a new name. As we think about angels singing and heralding good news, and as we think about wise men and shepherds coming to see the King of Kings, let's think back to the garden where we were driven out of God's presence. And let's look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we will forever be with the Lord. It's like that final verse of the book of Ezekiel. It's quite gripping. As Ezekiel is written of all the horrible things that are happening as the people are exiled, and he talks about the new Jerusalem that's going to come. And he talks about the name of the city is the Lord is there. What a promise for exiles and sojourners that we will one day make our way to a heavenly city as it comes down to earth. And the name of the city will be the Lord is there. We, we, we will be with him forever. He will be our God. And we will be his people. All because of Jesus. All because God became man. That's what we celebrate tonight. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would draw near to each family and individual represented here. We pray that you would drive the truth of your word and ultimately drive into our hearts the truth of Christ and what he came to do for us. We are so prone to struggle and wonder. We are prone to doubt. We're prone to fear. In this season of the year where we celebrate peace, we pray that we would know it in Christ. Give us that, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and minister to us even as we continue to sing and confess together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.